channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our third installment of a series that we call Entrepreneur Heaven. Well, Ron, this is a, a series that we do. We do this and best business books and then also our free Rider Friday. And I'm excited to talk about these four gentlemen. They're all men this time that we are going to talk about today. It's Sam Walton, P.T. Barnum, Andrew Carnegie. I'm going to go with that pronunciation, by the way. Okay. Carnegie. <laughs> Carnegie. It's, it's, it's more it's Scottish. So. Yeah, true. Uh, and then um, Conrad Hilton. And... All th- four of these guys, really, really interesting folks, and, and you picked them, but I, I really appreciate your selection of these because I I learned a lot by doing the research for these folks this week. They're all fascinating guys, and I, I just want to, again, we I always preface this t- type of show with this. Just because we're profiling these guys does not mean that Ron and I have promoted them as can for canonization within the sa- the sainthood of the Roman Catholic Church right we are, we're not we're not saying that these are perfect human beings that they always did the right thing but i would say that without what they contributed to business and therefore to greater society our our lives would not be as enriched as they are today and I so so therefore I, I look at them as having a, a huge net positive on on society. And let's jump in, Ron, because we have, we have so much material as usual on on these folks. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Sa- Sam Walton. You know, the fa- founder of Walmart. I think everybody knows that. Uh, pretty interesting in that he he started out like many of I actually all four of these guys with almost nothing. Right, none of none of the four that I I think of came from any kind of background where they had money as as children or their parents were wealthy, and and Walton is no exception to that. He he was he moved around a lot during the depression uh, in in the southern United States, which I, I must say, ha- having now experienced 106 degrees this week here in Texas, <laughs> must have been a bit of a challenge without air conditioning. I, I can't even imagine life without air conditioning, Ed. I try and think of those days and the smells and just, oh. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> but, he, you know, he worked his way up. And, of course, probably one of the, the most interesting things that I found about his childhood is that he was a, an Eagle Scout, later awarded a, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Boy Scouts. But I thought this was funny when I came across this. He was voted ready in high school. Do you know about this? He no. was voted the most, most versatile boy. <laughs> that was, that's what his high school class voted him. Most versatile boy. Okay. <laughs> well, that's awesome. You know, in 1940, he graduated from the University of Missouri. And do you know what kind of degree he earned? Yes, I do. I saw yeah. this. Economics degree. Yeah, he got a BA in economics. BA in e- real economics, I'm sure. Not, you know. Yes, he, he probably... He probably read Austrian uh, economists, <laughs> not just did math. He certainly understood supply and demand. The, yes. the other thing I found interesting, Ed, was one of his first jobs was at, uh, in 1940. Uh, Sam was born in 1918. In uh, 1940, after he graduated, he went to work for J.C. Penney. Jacques J- Penney. Yeah, and, and that's a, actually another entrepreneur I want to profile in a future series because I think he's got a pretty interesting story as well. I agree. I agree. And then, and then in '45, he opened his first variety store, didn't he? Yes, he did. And, and but not Walmart. Walmart comes a little bit later. And but what I think is interesting about his opening of this the first store, it wasn't really his. He he really just was managing it. Right. Right. And in fact, it was a couple of the lessons that he learned because he did not own the building, and he had turned this store into quite a little success. The owner of the building wanted wanted it for his own family and basically refused to renew the lease. Right, and then said to him, "Okay, you know, here, here's here's what we're going to do." He did he did end up buying him out, and I guess uh, Walton felt felt that I guess he got fifty thousand dollars or something like that. Thought it was a, a fair a fair price. Right, he had to start over, and he moved to Bentonville. And then he, and it was a Ben Franklin, wasn't it? Did he open, or it was called Walton's Five and Dime, but it's kind of modeled on the Ben. Remember the old Ben Franklin stores? Do I do remember, remember the old Ben Franklin I stores. I do too. Yes. Yeah, but I, no, in Bentonville, I don't think it was a Ben Franklin. Then no, it was Walton's Five and Dime, after. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, that I think, almost didn't happen either because there was some some negotiation going on with the the owner of the again over the ownership of the the rights of the building and the ability to lease additional space in an adjacent building with a ninety nine year lease and the whole thing almost almost fell through. But I think one of his his father or or cousin came in and and figured out how to make that happen and then. And this is just unbelievable if you think about this in today's dollars even. He, same square footage took a store that was doing $72,000 of retail a year at the time to 175000 in three years. <laughs> that is very impressive. Uh, and more, more than doubling. I mean, this, that's crazy. And, and he, he ended up opening up the first Walmart, didn't he, in uh, 1962 in Rogers, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what what I find in for, just fascinating about this whole story is this guy did something I think that is just very uh, it's just one of those insights that you just go wow it's so obvious he replaced inventory with information didn't he Yes, so he and just that was the key. Yeah, he just streamlined everything so. Procter and Gamble would know in real time how many Pampers they sold, and and then they wouldn't have to warehouse these things and have big distribution facilities. And it was just it was like the first 
massive implementation of just-in-time inventory. Yeah, I think that, that you know what I learned from from researching Walmart is is what he did is really took the the mantra of real estate agents everywhere location 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 and effectively applied it to the retail market space only his his mantra was logistics 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 <laughs> exactly and, and he was fanatical to like all of these guys or at least most of them about the customer and just really uh, tried to understand everything about his customers what drove value and of course his big thing was you know drop the price of necessities and to, uh, to give uh, lower income people a higher standard of living and and I have to say on any objective measure you look at it Walmart's achieved that no but he killed the mom and pop shops uh, run <laughs> and and Ed he achieved it even if you don't shop there but you, you know he he even taught his book Sam Walton um wrote a book uh, called Made in America, My Story. And I believe it was published in, in the year he passed away, 1992, as, as most of these probably are. But, you know, he, he, there was a battle over fair trade. You remember back in the days where manufacturers could determine what price goods could be sold at in the retail stores? Mm-hmm. These, were, these were called fair trade laws, and they benefited inefficient retailers since it protected them from low price competition. Well, state by state, these laws were started st- uh, began starting to be repealed in the 50s and 60s, and then in 1975, Congress actually stepped in and passed legislation just abolishing the practice completely, and that really gave Walmart a big boost, but it also was one of the reasons why the mom and pop, you know, stores started to go under as well. Well, and I think what's interesting about that whole thing is, is that we still see echoes of that today, right? You have, and I'm not quite sure how they're structured, but Apple, for example, is pretty good at making sure that Best Buy still sells a, an, an iMac at, at full bust out manufacturer suggested retail now i have heard and maybe you've heard something different i'd be curious as what your thoughts are but i have heard that that the way that apple is able to do that is that they have two separate contracts for the bigger hardware and a a second contract for the the um like the cables and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and the 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 cables is where like Best Buy makes their their margin. Like they, they they make very little on on selling the IMAX and selling selling all that uh, the, the the upper end hardware. But they make a boatload on the accessories. And the way that Apple makes it happen is is in the two separate structured contracts. They they tie them together and say, listen, if you unless you hold on to Full bust out retail on our upper end products. We're you're we're not going to authorize you to sell the accessories. Right, that could be. You know, this varies by state too, I believe. But I do believe there's ways around the manufacturers dictating, you know, a sales price. I guess the threat from Apple would be we just won't renew you, right? <laughs> if right. we if we find you undercutting and you know everybody wants to do business and carry Apple for the foot traffic, probably I would imagine. So mm-hmm. that's but but I, I'm I, I'm not exactly sure of the technical legal ways around, you know, these old fair trade laws. Yeah. But 
The the other thing Ed, that I that I think is um, kind of interesting is one that he says his single biggest regret, and I always pay close attention to that. You know, when people write that in a book, uh, in his whole business career, was he didn't include his associates in the initial profit sharing plan. He made it for managers only. Yes, and I did read that. There was a, it was $1,000 per or something. They could buy in, right? $1,000 worth of each of the stores. Right, right. Yeah. And he, he, and he, you know, he always used to say job security lasts only as long as the customer is satisfied. Nobody, <laughs> owns, you know, nobody owes anybody else a living. And it, it's so true. You know, he said the customer can fire everybody in this organization from the CEO on down, and they do it simply by spending their money somewhere else. Yeah, and and I have to admit, I'm not a Walmart shopper. I'm not. I don't. I don't like. I don't like the feel of of going into Walmart's. I, I much prefer Target. I think I've said that on the show. It's and it's it's not. I have have nothing against Walmart. I just don't like the shopping experience. I agree. And and you know what? I I actually think it's deteriorated since Sam's day. I think it used to be a little bit friendlier and probably a little bit more orderly and clean. But it's like they just don't care about that anymore, you know? Yeah, it's kind of passed a little bit. Although, next time you're down here, we do have to go to the Walmart store in Plano, which is, I don't know, one of two, I think, they have that are, are, in fact, it's not even the same logo. I don't know if you're aware of these two mega stores. And it's got a sushi bar (laughs) and and, and all wood floors. I'm serious. Wow, no, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, because it's it's close by to that central market that I brought you to. Right, right. Hey, didn't didn't we drive past what was it the Nebraska Furniture Store? Nebraska Furniture Mart. Did, yeah. You know who owns that? <laughs> no, the Wal- Warren Walmart. Buffett. Warren Buffett. Oh, Buffett. Okay, That's Berkshire. Buffett. It's a Berkshire deal. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And they well, say hey, it's amazing foot traffic, by the way. Well, we're, bump, we're bumping a bit against the, the first break here, Ron. But I, I want to ask you. So I, I did come across an interesting stat. Do you know how many Walmarts there are in China? Oh, no. 358. <laughs> wow. There are 358 Walmart stores in China. Go figure. I would, that, I would have not guessed that. No, me neither. That's impressive. So anyway, we're up against our first break, and thank you for listening to The Soul of Enterprise. We know that you can uh, always hashtag AskTSOE on Twitter during the show. And, of course, AskTSOE at Verisage.com. Send us an email. Uh, We'd love for you to, of course, take a look at the website, TheSoulOfEnterprise.com. There's got all kinds of show notes up there, and I I will uh, admit I'm behind in posting those notes because of uh, Sage Summit last week, but this week I will catch up on that. But right now, we want to take a break from our and hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. 
you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here doing Entrepreneur Heaven. We're profiling Sam Walton, P.T. Barnum, Andrew Carnegie and Conrad Hilton, but uh, I'd like to give a shout out to Hector and thank you, Hector, for your tweets. And folks, I'd like to remind you also, too, we know a lot of you listen on demand and we'd love it if you could go to iTunes and rate the show. That, that really helps us. And if you want to ask us a question or make a comment at any time, you can do so on Twitter at hashtag Ask TSOE, and we do monitor that live during the show. So, Ed, let's go to, uh, I guess, a fellow New Yorker, right? Yeah, my um, buddy PT. <laughs> <laughs> Phineas Taylor Barnum. <laughs> Tell us about Phineas. Well, you know, the most interesting thing in my research that I came across on this is that his most infamous quote, there's a sucker born every minute, he did not say it. <laughs> that was I was like a huh go figure you know that that which reminds me of course of uh, Yogi Berra's favorite quote well one of his quotes Yogi's very quotable but uh, and it, which is I didn't say everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> we we've I, we've said this before, but we do need to do a whole show on on quotes, both you know, <laughs> properly attributed, and not right. That's a good idea. I'm writing that down right now. Quote show, <laughs> quote show. Because there's a ton of them that are either warped or misattributed or whatever, and it's just it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, and and so and and PT, he was he was an interesting dude because you know very ahead of his time in some ways, but then then not so much in a lot of ways. So it was a, he's a, a, a an interesting character to try to get to know. He he really is. I mean, born in uh, 1810, right? And he said even from being a young boy, he didn't like really working with his hands. And he said so he he started making uh, plans for money making. <laughs> <laughs> Went to work for some merchants and then uh, opened up his own shop in, yeah. in New York City. And I, I don't know what he sold, but he did have his own store for a while. Yeah, and and then you know, parlayed that one one thing to the next to the next, and he uh, finally got in, involved in this whole you know theatrical experience. I guess is the best way to to describe him because he, he it, it wasn't really theater per se, but and it wasn't just his museums, but it was I guess spectacle. I mean, this is obviously before radio and television, and and he really was just about creating spectacle. 
yeah, human oddities and other you know interesting things. I the 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 story that I've read about him by historians said he heard of a black slave by the name of Joyce Heath, who was reputed to be 161 years old, and George Washington's nurse. Right, and she was on display in Philadelphia, and he bought her for a thousand dollars in 1835. Mm-hmm. So he would have been 25 years old, put her on display, and and I guess that's kind of how this whole thing created. But he had a whole uh, a, a museum, didn't he, in New York, where he displayed these, and he had a stage, and he put on shows of various types. Yes, and, it, it helped, by the way, that Heath was was basically a, paralyzed and mute, and and a deaf mute. Right. <laughs> and, and I have a I have a feeling she wasn't 161 years old. No, and I think that they it did come out later that he that you know she was only about 80, not surprisingly. But you know, then he moved on to General Tom Thumb. Uh, you know, which of course reeks of child exploitation because the 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 kid was supposed to be he he was clearly very short of stature, but uh, he was supposed to be eleven years old, but he was actually only four at the time, and you know they had him smoking and drinking. <laughs> but you know when I, when I was looking through this, and you worry about you, you and it, it does sound horrible. I mean, I uh, you, but you wonder, okay, so what was good old General Tom Thumb's other opportunity, right? Um, and then if you look at it today, you know, we have the, the crazy honey boo-boo craze. I don't know if you've ever seen any of that, Ron. Unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, make, I make, make, make it a point to, to try to avoid, you know, anything related to honey boo-boo. Uh, it, it, but people watch it anyway. And this is, this is the quote that I think from, from P.T. Barnum that I think makes a lot of sense of this. He said, the public is a very strange animal. They are fickle and oft times perverse. And he just understood that. He just understood that this is the and it's still the case. It's a, you know I don't see any moral difference between what's happening with general what happened to General Tom Thumb at the time and and Honey Boo Boo today. I mean well, absolutely reality TV. Yep. Yep. Caitlin, uh, you take your take your pick. Yep. Uh, you know, he was accused of all sorts of things, you know, being a charlatan and all this, but he, he just wanted to entertain in America. He thought work too hard and laugh too little. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he, he just knew uh, instinctively that people would, would gravitate to this stuff. And, and he always tried to give them a great show. He always tried to give them their money's worth. And, and, and that's what he said. He was he was very much into. I guess we could call it aggressive marketing. I would might be the, the the way. But he and he said, yes, some of my stuff is is hoaxes, but I want it. But but I, but once people here are here, I want them to know that they're going to be entertained and they're going to like it, and it's 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 going to make them happier. And he was while he was okay with these hoaxes or humbugs as he called them, and he even referred to himself as the Prince of Humbug. He he did not like you know, mediums who took advantage of the bereaved, and and in fact, like the amazing Randy and Houdini, sought out to to um, to 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 uh, uh, show them up as frauds. Right, right. Now uh, he wrote an essay 
in uh-huh. um, 19, uh, what is it, 19, uh, 1869, sorry, uh, called the American Museum. And he tells a story in here that I want to tell you, that because I think you'll appreciate this. You know the geography of New York better than I do. Mm-hmm. But a, a kind of down and out guy comes into his museum and asks him for a job or asks him for some money. And he says, well, why aren't you earning a living? And the guy says, I can't find work. And he says, I'll tell you what. I'll hire you for, you know, a buck and a half a day. And so he takes this guy, gives him five bricks. And he says, I want you to go outside and lay a brick on the sidewalk at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street, Mm -hmm. another close by the museum, a third diagonally across the way on the corner of Broadway and is it Bessie Street by the Astor House, and put down the fourth brick on the sidewalk in front of St. Paul's Church. And he says... The fifth brick in your hand take up a rapid march from one point to the other, making the circuit, exchanging your brick at every point. Don't say anything to anyone. Keep a serious countenance. Don't ask her any questions. And this guy did this, and he did it kind of in a military marching style. (laughs) And there were crowds gathering around watching this guy. And, of course, he was supposed to take at the the strike of the hour at the the church clock, Mm -hmm. uh, St. Paul's clock, He'd go back to the museum and go inside the museum. Well, guess what? A bunch of people followed him into the museum, you know, Mm -hmm. paid the entry fee to see what the heck he was doing. And he strolled around the museum, very seriously looking at everything, and then walked back out and did the whole routine over again. This continued for several days, and finally the cops had to shut it down because the crowds on the sidewalk were enormous. (laughs) That's awesome. And, and I just thought this was a great, I mean, you talk about going viral <laughs> in the 1800s. Yeah, this yeah. is how the, P.T. Barnum did it. And I just figured it out. That's awesome. Isn't that, isn't that great? And, and and then the other thing he said that I just, I just love this. Um, he, he said, you know, he put a band in the balcony outside of the museum uh, and, and played music. Mm-hmm. And it was free. And he said, but what I made sure was that the band was awful. And so people would want to get away with it, or get away from it, and they'd come into the museum. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. And, and he said this, Ed, about this experience, what he learned from, you know, doing this. He said, when people expect to get something for nothing, they are sure to be cheated and generally deserve to be. And so, no doubt, some of my outdoor patrons were sorely disappointed. But when they came inside and paid to be amused and instructed, I took care to see that they not only received the full worth of their money, but were more than satisfied. Yeah, brilliant. And, it, it, and he says, you know, nobody ever asked for a refund. He had a, he had a refund policy. And nobody ever asked for their money back from this museum. And he wore that as a badge of honor. So this guy really did understand customer value, even though he was accused of being you know, all sorts of things, but he, he really did give people a good time and, and he was entertaining. Right. Well, along those, along those lines, one of the things that he did in the museum is he put up a sign called and said this way to the egress. <laughs> right. Right. And of course, egress means exit. Yep. And, but there were, you know, signs that people would follow and all of a sudden they would, they would walk into this, this special room and find themselves back out on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Having, <laughs> having to repay the entry fee. Now, what he did say is some, if, if people complained, he would let them right back in. Right. He says, but most people were so overcome with laughter at themselves <laughs> that 
that that they would pay would gladly pay the entry fee a second time. Right. <laughs> just um, and and then he did some like really weird stuff. So I just got to go through this quickly because we're bumping up on an hour. Maybe we should do a whole show on PT. But that the he his autobiography was so successful that he actually gave up the copyright on it. Mm, mm. As a, as a marketing ploy, figuring that uh, these other book houses would would print it anyway, and it ended up for in the in the last uh, twenty years of the uh, or in in the in the nineteenth century was second only to the New Testament in terms of books produced. Wow! Yeah, I bet I bet he was. He, I mean, he he took the New York thing and he kind of took it on the road, right? And that kind of morphed into the the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus and. Didn't he end up selling that in 1907 yes. for 400,000 bucks? Yep. yep. Which is about eight and a half million dollars today's nine million dollars in today's money or something. Um, but yeah, really interesting. And, and uh, I just, I, I found this guy to be a really uh, entertaining character for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A couple more things quickly. I know we have we've got one minute before our break, but sure. uh, he, he, he produced a blackface minstrelry. Mm-hmm. But it but it but it parodied parodied white supremacist lectures, right? Because he was actually very anti-slavery in the end. Right. Even though he you know he bought he bought the the, the slave as part of his first thing. And then the, I think this is probably one of the the the, the most bizarre or funny or uh, but I, I love this idea. He gave permission for his own obituary to be printed so that he could read it ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like Ben Franklin. <laughs> ben Franklin might have done that. <laughs> no, absolutely. Cool stuff. That's awesome, though. Well, folks, this is, uh, this is just flying by, and I can't believe it. I just love doing these shows. But um, we, we're up against a break, and we'd like to remind you, if you'd like to get a hold or send Ed and I an email, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com and check out the show notes on the soloenterprise.com and now we want to hear from our sponsor Azamba We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. 
To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're talking entrepreneur heaven today. We're profiling four entrepreneurs Sam Walton, P.T. Barnum, Andrew Carnegie, and Conrad Hilton. We've just to finish up on on Barnum, uh, Ron. The last thing I wanted to point out is that it, late in his life, as as actually, I think all of these these folks have, and we haven't even begun to talk about uh, this this piece of their lives, but became big into philanthropy. But right. but uh, <laughs> it's funny. P.T. called it profitable philanthropy. I don't mm-hmm. know, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think is just the okay. Does that not echo all of the stuff that we hear today? Oh, it does. Right about the you know the Susan Coleman breast cancer and 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 um, I forget the guy's name who's written so many articles for Harvard Business Review um, on on yeah. yep yeah, on a, was it Paletta? Yeah, Dan Paletta, I think wrote the yep. book Uncharitable. Yep. And you know, so so again, here's a guy who was way ahead of his time uh, with regard to that. But mo- moving on to Andrew Carnegie, you know, ready, Ron? He's one of these those damn in- immigrants, you know. Yeah. He's, <laughs> can't, you know, he wasn't even a, he wasn't even American. Yep. For God's sake, uh, born in uh, in uh, Dunfermline, uh, Scotland. Uh, again, of poor, almost indigent uh, parents, uh, who finally emigrated to the United States when he was in his, I guess, uh, early teens, I believe. Yeah, he was twelve. Yeah, he was. 12. And, and and then just goes on to and, and what? But curiously, you know, I, I, he they moved to Allegheny, uh, Pennsylvania, which is near near Pittsburgh. And you're like, well, you know, why do they pick there? This, well, because actually Pittsburgh was founded. I don't know if you know this by a Scot. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, 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 John Forbes. Um, mm-hmm. in, in fact, and I only know this because my wife, his family, originally from Pittsburgh. It, he even the guy who founded the city uh, intended it for it, it to be pronounced Pittsburgh, <laughs> like like Edinburgh. Right, right. right? Yep. So it's so I just like to say that I like to whenever I talk about Pittsburgh, I say Pittsburgh. <laughs> 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 well, he at 16, this guy goes to work as a telegraph operator for the Pennsylvania Railroad and stayed there for 12 years and kind of noticed that the uh, wooden bridges were kind of obsolete, that the railroads ran over and started the Keystone uh, Bridge Works in 1865. Mm-hmm. And then in 1870, he started to concentrate on steel production. And what I find interesting, Ed, is in 1870, around this time when he started um, U.S. what became known as U.S. Steel, Britain produced more steel than the rest of the world combined. Mm-hmm. But by 1900, by the time Carnegie retired, the U.S. was producing twice as much steel as the U.K., and it was higher quality and lowest price. Yes. You know, these guys known as the robber barons, and you know we could do a whole show just on that, right? But what they did was they just they democratized these commodities or products and brought them to the masses in larger volumes so they could be used for more uses, and they lowered the price. In 1875, steel was 160 bucks a ton, and Carnegie by 1898 got it down to 17 dollars a ton. Just incredible. And when I was reading about this, you know, you do hear all of this, the, the robber baron stuff. But, you know, he and J.P. Morgan envision, and this is a quote. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Uh, an integrated steel industry that would, ready, lower costs, 
lower prices to consumers, produce greater quantities, and raise wages for workers. Workers. God and, forbid. And, you know, that's exactly what he did. And, you know, he he really, because he hung, he knew railroads, obviously, and railroads were the people who developed cost accounting. Right. It was really the engineers who worked for the railroads, not so much the accountants. And Carnegie brought that same cost accounting mentality to the steel industry. So the, the line I like from him uh, is, you know, he said, cut the prices, scoop the market, run the mills full, watch the costs, and the profits will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was fanatical about costs. Now, of course, you know, as we talked, uh, I think it was last week, right, during Free Rider Friday about what is it, jet.com? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talked about having a low price strategy and how perilous that is in today's world. Uh, we're a little bit more affluent uh, than <laughs> than we were back in the eighteen eighties uh, or whatever. But uh, you know, he was just absolutely maniacal about driving his costs down and, in turn, the price to the consumer. Yes, and and then this did kind of turn on itself at one point, and it's when the a lot of the mills tried to to, to start to unionize. Yes, and it, it, he wasn't against the workers, but he was against unions, and because he he felt that their demands on for higher salary amounted to protectionism, right? And that the lower, and this was his argument, and uh, you know it still is true today, and uh, and and I I make this argument in in similar circumstances, is that the the, the reason for that is is that it it. it Yes, certain people get higher salaries. It benefits a smaller group, but the lower costs benefited all of the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and he and he made that made that argument. And of course, I guess at the time it held a little bit more weight than it does today because people now, if you say that, just laugh at you. Right. You know, he was he was interesting on unions though because he actually, you know, he had a he had an enormous thirst for public approbation. I mean, he really wanted people to like him. And he actually wrote very nice things about the unions. And Ed, they actually lionized him. And and this of course, you know, it was even before the uh, the Homestead Steelworks strike in eighteen ninety two when he sent in 300 Pinkerton guards to crush yeah. the workers. Of course, he was overseas on vacation. I think he was in Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a vacation. But unions actually wrote very nice things about uh, Carnegie uh, throughout his life, which I, which I find kind of interesting, unlike, say, you know, Henry Ford. Right, right. No, it so, was it, so, but but he was working behind the scenes scenes to to not allow them to happen. And it was the other thing that I that I found a contradiction in his his thinking on some stuff was that he was very much opposed, or very much for what you and I would probably call laissez faire capitalism. But he did lobby Congress for favorable tariffs. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess some people on his management team actually disagreed, and one guy even left. Over right. it. Right, right, yeah, yeah, no, I did. How, how many businesses lobby for quotas, protections, tariffs? I mean, yeah, I, you know, Gilder, I think, wrote in Wealth and Poverty. It's, yeah, he said, uh, what this surprises you? It's kind of like a, a child fi- finding out his parents engage in sexual intercourse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, 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 would, we would expect, um, you know, businesses to do that. 
but he also wrote uh, a, uh, an essay called A Crucial Question in 1896, and this was specifically advice to young people on how to become business owners. And this was really interesting, Ed, because you know how we love to attribute success to a big portion of luck. Yep. You know, you were born to the right parents or they were, they were you know, college educated or whatever. And Carnegie did not believe that at all. He said, should you fail, the fault is not in the stars, but in yourselves. And he told them, you know, you take any two men, two men, a success and a failure. And if you really dig deep behind the scenes, you'll see that the, the success had better judgment. So he was not one of these guys that believed it was, you know, just a matter of luck. Exactly. I, I, you know, he he uh, and and clearly worked hard his his entire life. He did have the well, not his entire life, because he actually had this kind of rule that you know the first your first third of your life is supposed to be made made up of getting yourself educated and understanding and knowledge and and uh, and and be getting prepared to make those judgments. The second third of your life is was to to make sure that you made as much money as possible, and the third, the third third of your life was supposed to be giving it all back away. <laughs> right, right, yeah. He he wrote the gospel of wealth, you know, yes. and that's where he said the man who dies uh, rich dies disgraced. And um, yeah, re- re- really interesting guy. And he also was a big believer, and Tim Williams would love this in concentrate your energy. And mm-hmm. thought and capital exclusively upon the business in which you were engaged. I mean, he really wanted you to do one thing and do it just incredibly well. Yeah, I, I also you mentioned U.S. Steel, first billion dollar market cap company ever, by the way. Yeah, yeah, so I think was interesting. Uh, but when when he did sell his interest to J.P. Morgan to create. Mm-hmm. That whole thing, uh, he, he he insisted. I don't know if you. This is funny. He insisted that the transaction occur in New Jersey. Are you mm. aware of this? No. And and all and he had a special warehouse for the the bearer bonds that because you know he he was he was given basically bonds that said you're entitled to this much gold. I mean that's that's the way it worked. And it was you know millions of dollars then, right? Right. Uh, and so the, so he he had a special warehouse. And uh, built in in New Jersey to to store these bonds, and the, you know what the reason was? New, New York had a had a tax that he was trying to avoid. <laughs> I, I I knew there was a tax angle in this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> there always is. <laughs> he was you know so he he was offshoring those profits from New York to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and he sold out for like 480 million, didn't he? And, he, and he, his share of that was 300 million or something. Exactly. Which, which of course, he tried to give away. And just because of the magic of compound interest, it was really hard for him no. to give it away because it kept growing. He couldn't. He could, like, he could, he he could not give it away. Literally, could not spend it fast, fast enough. enough. He could yep. not do it. And he so, ended which up is why he away. did die disgraced then. <laughs> he did end up giving away something like $330 million and, and just in context, I mean, Rockefeller, the other great businessman of that era, and also one of the richest men, only gave away $175 million. Right. So that's pretty interesting. But Ed, you know, he actually wrote once an epitaph for his grave uh, that said, here lies one who knew how to get around him men cleverer than himself. 
he, he really he, he he wasn't a technological guy he, he he you know he didn't understand all the sophisticated chemistry of all this but he knew how to hire a chemist <laughs> you know he knew how to hire the right people and he wasn't afraid afraid to do that and he's the one that's got all these quotes about hey you can strip away our 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 assets and our factory and if you keep our people we'll we'll be back in business in 5 years you know, but if you take away our people, we'll have nothing. So he he definitely understood the economy in mind. He did, and 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 again, he also, as we said, we said, spent a lot of time giving stuff away. And you know, the, the litany of organizations that he founded, uh, including Car- Carnegie Mellon University, and you know, he just goes on and on and on and on and on. Right, but the the. I just I just do find it interesting this whole you know he he he's writing this essay called the 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 gospel of wealth and then we have Warren Buffett today saying I should pay higher taxes and it just makes no sense to me it's like did he he realized that no 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 he's the one who could could better figure out how to help the poor and indigent not some agency and he was very much opposed to government interference and the whole progressivism and even opposed American imperialism even though it would would have expanded his his network but he opposed th- that idea under the under the notion that hey listen we we should not create quote unquote colonies the, the way that that we were we were started out as a nation pretty interesting yeah I, you know i if if Buffett wants to pay more taxes, as we've said before, he he can obviously do that. But instead, he chose to give his wealth to another rich man, <laughs> so they could give it away. So I, you know, I, I I've come to believe Ed that Buffett only says that you should raise our taxes to just to let him off the hook. Yeah, probably then true. Nobody and will as, as I've written, it's, it's I believe it's pay pay.gov you can go anyone can go yeah. and make a voluntary voluntary contribution to pay down the debt so just pay.gov Absolutely. if he, he can go there anytime i'm sure that website will crash now <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> knowing our audience for sure yeah they're all going there right now and well, we're up against i can't believe it our third break already ron and again if you want to get a hold of us ask tsoe at verisage.com hashtag ask tsoe during the show and we'll take a quick check on that to see if any of you wanted to get a hold of us and we'll be back after this word from sage Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Entrepreneur Heaven. And Ed, just one more thing on, uh, a couple more things on Carnegie here before we go on to Conrad Hilton. You know, for the last two decades of his life, after he retired, he, he uh, committed himself completely to world peace. And it was a complete failure. I mean, this guy believed in uh, the Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, thought he was, you know, he can be trusted and he declares himself for peace. And uh, the, the business historian Richard S. Tedlow uh, said, actually, it, it's worse than a complete failure. He was actually a naive fool. Uh, to c- commit himself to this venture because he just didn't uh, didn't have an understanding of world history so much as maybe he thought just because he was rich, you know. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. But the other thing is he gave away 7,000 church organs too along with all the libraries and all the other stuff he did and I just, he must have had a fixation with uh, Love the organ organs. music, yeah. you know. Yeah. Dakota and Fugue and D minor. It's good, it's yeah. good stuff. <laughs> so Conrad Hilton. yeah. Another interesting guy, you know, he was married and divorced from Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> I so saw that and actually had a kid with her, and <laughs> but which she says was conceived in rape. I mean, this is like, oh wow, I, yeah, I I didn't saw, yeah, that. according okay. to her autobiography. I was like, okay, so now, now the whole Paris Hilton thing comes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, well, comes that's a little bit more clear. <laughs> Well, you know, he, his father ran a general store. They grew up in New Mexico, and um, he tried to manage his uh, father's store, but the father kept meddling. So I guess he uh, also served in World War One. But when he tried to find a hotel uh, room in Cisco, Texas, he mm-hmm. couldn't. Yeah. And he started talking to the owner, and the owner said uh, he'd be happy to sell him. What is the Mobley in Cisco, which he called as his great lady, for forty grand, and he gave him a week to come up with the money, and and Conrad got it. He scraped it together from family and friends and came up with forty grand, bought his first hotel, and then in uh, nineteen twenty one he added two more. Um, so he he he, uh, he said, you know, as soon as he fought, he bought the first one, he'd he'd lay there and think about having a chain of hotels. So this was even before J.W. Marriott got into a uh, get you know his hot shop stores. Um, Conrad was in the hotel business, right? And really, I guess the first guy then to put together this this concept of a chain, right, and a, a national brand or even then a worldwide brand. Might have been. I don't. I don't know if he's actually the first. There might be others out there. I'm not sure, like Howard Johnson or other like roadside. Um, you know, mo- well, let's say there was mo- motel, but this, is, but this is hotel. I mean, I, hotel, and I am making yeah. a distinction, but you know, I, mean, I could be wrong there. Yeah, no, no, it's it. it uh, you may be right about that. I'm not. I'm not sure if he's the first, but uh, you know, it was really interesting. Is when he wanted to break ground on his first million dollar hotel, and he wanted to build it in the Dallas Business District on the corner of Maine and Harwood. Is it still there? Do you know? The building is still there. It's not is a Hilton Hotel, though. It's not a Hilton. Okay. No. Well, in 1924, the owner of the land on this corner, uh, George Loudermilk, if you can believe that name, mm-hmm. uh, he, he bought an option. He, he optioned the land, and but he couldn't figure out how to raise the money to do this because not only was he going to have to buy the land, 
but then he was going to have to spend a million bucks to build a hotel on it. So he came back to the owner of the land and he said, I want to lease your land for 99 years. And the, the owner said, oh, that's interesting. And he said, but I also want a clause authorizing me to float alone on the real estate. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the owner really balked at this clause that he wanted in this 99-year lease. And he said, but look, he said, if I default, not only do you get your land back, but you get my building. Right. And the guy ended up doing it. And that's how he got his first million-dollar hotel. The 99-year lease was like 31 grand a, a year. Uh huh. So he was able to then take that money and put it into the construction. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was known as the Dallas Hilton. It's, it's now, I think, the Dallas in, um, Indigo, and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's owned by like Intercontinental or one of the other other chains. And it, and it, it he I think that's one of the ones that he lost during the depression, or maybe he held on to it, but ended up selling it shortly thereafter before he w- really went and rebuilt his entire empire. Right. And, you know, I know more about Marriott than I do about Hilton, um, but I do know that he also had an incredible customer service ethic that, that he tried to just permeate throughout the organization. And I've always admired that about, about Hilton's as well. Oh yeah, and and I and you there they it's still alive in in the in the in the chain. I mean, I have great stories to tell about the DFW Lakes Hilton, and I know you've been there, Ron, because we've done some programs out there. And it 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 is it's not like the the most unique hotel from a look standpoint, but it is unique in the way that they run conferences there. They have they just have a, a a very different approach from any other place that that I've worked with and I aside from the fact that I don't have to get in a plane and fly anywhere if I'm running a conference in Dallas I, I want to be there because they they just do a great job in fact that that particular property has won three Connie awards which mm-hmm. they have displayed in their showcase you know it's a, it's this a famous bust of of Conrad Hilton right right you, you know just go you know as we Troll around, look at pictures of stuff as we do the research for this. Just, I, I just keep flashing back to that Madman, you know. Episode. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up because, but oh right, yeah, I love it. <laughs> with, with, I mean, but it, what was a dead ringer for Conrad Hilton? Like they dug him up. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, no kidding. That guy was great. He was just great the way they did him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fa- fascinating. Never, never really happened. Andre, Don Draper never really encountered Conrad Hilton, but. Ah uh, well, but <laughs> but what is mentioned in that episode and was 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 true is that he bought the management rights to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in 1949, mm-hmm. and and I didn't realize this that they actually did not own that hotel in 19 until 1972. So it was it, they were really just running it for for quite some time. Right, right. He was really proud of that. I mean, that was his crown jewel, wasn't it? Oh, well, of course, yeah. So, you know, got a salad named after it, best kitchen <laughs> in the world. It's actually a line from Mad Men. Oh. I remember that. <laughs> and now, as, also looking at, you know, over his career and, and looking at all the hotels he's got around the world, and all, all I could think about going through the back of my mind was, and now Paris gets to spend it all. Yeah, but not <laughs> true. 
but not true. Because <laughs> I, I actually did because you know again these these guys very very much into philanthropy in the end, or at least creating foundations in their names. Let's put it that way. True, true, yes. And 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 Conrad Hilton did that, of course, creating yep. the Conrad whatever Hilton Foundation. Uh, and I don't know if you were this, but then but left like ninety seven percent to the foundation, and then very limited to his his uh, heirs. I mean, oh, okay. You know, was, it, it was that much thousand dollars here and there. Now his son, uh, who's got a very unusual name, and I can't think of it right now. But right, right. It, his son uh, contested the will, mm, mm, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. won. And won. Right now, the son was in fact CEO of the Hilton Hotels or president or something. But he contested the will and and won. Uh, and won, won it back and won, you know, a controlling interest, whatever, before the shares went someplace else. <laughs> but get this. He then he then and his own he announced uh, this is in 2007 that when he dies, he's going to donate 97 percent to the foundation. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good for him. Uh, well, yeah. And, and again, it was a big a big plus because he, he, he did make a boatload more cash. So it was, it was a good investment in the end. <laughs> right. W- one thing that I just wanted to uh, just to go back to, to uh, Sam Walton for a minute. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you happened across this little factoid, too. I found this great because it just ties into the whole our show. Uh, but do you know what Sam Walton's title was on the official org chart? No. Chief Spiritual Officer. Love it. There you a go. CSO, Ed. A CSO. CSO. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, <laughs> we're all I can't believe we're done with the show already. By the way, those of you on, on feeds for the show, you, you we did not blow up or anything. You are getting three additional bonus episodes that will be sent to your iPod feed or your iTunes feed, I should say. Uh, these are the three episodes that we did at Sage Summit, and they should be in your feed along with this show th- today. So that's great. So we're looking forward to, to that. But uh what do we got next week, Ron? Yeah, we've got your colleague, right? Jennifer yes. Warwa. Jennifer Warwa. Excited, excited to have Jennifer on the show. Uh, Jennifer is a, a, a wealth of knowledge, knows a boatload of stuff. Uh, about accountants and and how and and is going to be and regale us with some uh, some pretty fun stories that she's got as well as get us up to the latest and greatest on on thinking in the accounting and bookkeeping industry. So look forward to having her. It. I'm looking forward to that, Ed. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>